2: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves award season goes all year round. I am Katie Rich, the deputy editor for VanityFair.com. I'm here with our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. And our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, guys. I realized saying Vanity Fair three times just kind of wore me out.
3: No, that's bran- brand sim- awareness. I like Simplifying this. it.
2: <laughs> So we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about this week. And uh, Joanna is freshly back from Los Angeles. And I think your Paley Fest adventures are very well covered on VF.com. But I wanted to quickly quiz you about your experience of being inside the Dolby Theater and your revelation in there, which sorry, the Dolby Theater, which is where the Oscars happen, which is why we're talking about it on this podcast. <laughs>
0: And I got kind of excited. I was like, oh, I'm going to the Dolby Theater where they have the Oscars. And I've seen the red carpet leading up to the Dolby Theater a million times. I know what this looks like. And then I got there. And, you know, every resident of L.A. can probably tell you and Richard could tell you and Mike could tell you. I'm just the last to know that the <laughs> Dolby Theater is inside like a like low-rent mall. Not like low. It's middle-of-the-road <laughs> mall. The middle There's of no the Apple road. store
2: in this mall.
4: Boy, no. Vanity Fair is really rubbing off on you, Joanna. You're such a cultural <laughs> elitist.
0: Well, I'm just saying, like, you know, I, I'm from the Bay Area. I've seen I, – I know Palo Alto. I've seen some, like, snobby malls. This is not one of those. There's right. a Hot Topic there. There's a Cold Stone Creamery, you know? Yeah. Like, I went to the Hot Topic next to the Dolby Theater. Did so, you buy anything? Um, I did not, but we messed with some of their displays. Don't tell them. So um, – <laughs> You know, it's just a weird experience. And then going inside, I was like, ah, this is the view I recognize. And walking up, I can see how they mask it a little bit, like it's partially recognizable to me. But uh, next time, you, when you watch the Oscars next year, guys, or go back and rewatch the tape of that you have saved of old red carpet experiences or whatever, <laughs> uh, look for <laughs> the mallness of it all because it's there. So
3: uh, I was there uh, for two days in a row uh, last April, writing of piece about american idol the end of american idol where they and they had the, the show there for the finale mm-hmm. episodes um and i am not too ashamed to admit that i um before each show the the, the the penultimate and the final show um i had a drink by myself at the hard rock cafe <laughs> really <laughs> well it was the only place around that yeah. was like semi like i could get a seat or whatever
0: there's a california pizza kitchen as well oh, so you know. Right. <laughs>
4: well what's the hotel next door because the closest i ever got to going to the oscars was sitting in the bar of the hotel next door with my laptop during the oscars so that i could then go to the governor's ball which
3: is upstairs in the mall yeah it's all it's <sighs> but, all there I yeah mean, it's a terrible section of la and you no, know.
0: yeah hollywood and highland it's insane that the governor's ball is upstairs in the mall that's crazy yeah. that's where they inscribe the oscars guys yeah so. yep. the magic happens this
2: makes you think like carnegie hall is like this beautiful stately building that's by itself and it like it looks as great in real life as it does on television same with radio city so mm-hmm. new york Triumphs. Well, that's, I mean,
4: it's perfect Hollywood thing of like, we can (laughs) make a show anywhere. You know, yeah.
2: Yeah, Let's do it, set it up in the desert overnight. Set up a curtain that blocks out the cold stone. And then, uh, Mm -hmm. um, they do the
3: Emmys at the airport. (laughs) (laughs) It's really really amazing. At the Avis, actually, where you (laughs) pick up your car. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So, Joanna, after all of your traveling for Paley Fest and hanging out at the Dolby Theater, you've also been uh, kind of piecing together a trend that's been going on around us that is maybe the opposite of what the Academy was trying to do with all the rules changes. Whitewashing still hasn't gone away, and it has been biting a lot of people in the ass lately. Uh, What have you been noticing there?
0: Well, you know, I mean, I'm certainly not the person to notice this trend, but there's been a lot of social media furor over the casting of white actors in roles that either were originally written as or could have gone to an Asian actor. And I think what we're looking at now is maybe we're at a tipping point where financially – Casting a white actor actually might hurt your project more than it helps because originally, you know, the idea was you cast a Matt Damon in The Great Wall to make The Great Wall more appealing to a broader audience. Um, But if the sort of stink of a whitewashing controversy is hurting the bottom line, I think that is actually where we're going to see progress on this particular topic.
2: Yeah. And with Iron Fist on Netflix, like we can't really know what the financial impact is there, but the response was so scathing that it feels like there had to have been something.
0: Well, the only metric I could come up with for Iron Fist, because because the Rotten Tomatoes split is the same as it was for like Suicide Squad, where it's like 85% positive by you know audiences and 17% rotten by critics. But I I find the Rotten Tomatoes metric to be wildly inaccurate of of anything. But the uh, the Netflix star rating is interesting to me because Jessica Jones and Daredevil both have like five stars by user ratings, and Luke uh, Luke Cage has four and a half stars and then iron fist has two stars
2: Mm. so
0: by netflix's own metric the only one they will release to the public iron fist has a negative response whether or not they got as many eyeballs on it as they want we will never know so and they're about to get rid of the star
2: rating so our time to know is going away
0: (laughs) oh no our last vestige of knowing
4: doesn't it seem like there's a huge just missed opportunity i I genuinely think people just have their heads up their ass on this topic because you have... There's so much goodwill to be taken advantage of, even cynically, um, from right. uh, you know audiences that feel underrepresented. Mm-hmm. There's so much easy, free, good press to be had. By, like, Why Kate, the hell would Asian you then lead. turn it in the other direction yeah. unless, unless it's like... Do you think, Joanna, that this is really short sighted bean counters inside the studios who are just like, oh, no, this person's Q rating is higher than this person and they're not looking at the big picture or is it unimaginative directors? What is causing the issue? Because it seems blatantly obvious that this is just dumb, even as you're saying, like financially, let alone, you know, whatever moral element is involved.
0: Well, I think we're just seeing a we're in the middle of a change. Like, we will look back on this and think it's like, you know, it's not quite Mickey Rooney and, and Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? It's not as bad, quote unquote, as that. But I think we will look back on this time and see, you know, Scarlett Johansson playing a character who's called Major Matoko Kusanagi as like a really bad idea. God, that's her but, name? Jesus. I mean, she. I think she's just referred to as Major in the film, but that is the character's name.
4: Yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. It's just we're on a in the middle of a transition. Yeah,
0: exactly, and and so like if you look, like, you know, it's like I think it's like black. I mean, I don't know if I'm gonna get in trouble for comparing whitewashing to blackface, but like there was a time when everyone was like, yeah, this is okay, and then yeah. there was a time where it was like this is maybe not okay, and now yeah. it's like that is really not okay
4: well when i look back at stuff from when i was growing up or whatever you know we just watched um my fiance and i watched bonfire of the vanities which is not a good movie but there's an amazing book about what a disaster the making of the movie was which i recently read and there's some incredibly problematic stuff, racial stuff in that movie that is from 1990, which, you know, I was 15 years old. I remember seeing like, it at the time and that's not what I was thinking about. That was about. like
2: Central Park Five era, right?
4: Like, Yeah, I mean, they, they get stuck, Tom Hanks, you mm-hmm. know, and Melanie Griffith gets stuck in the Bronx, which is like, I mean, the Bronx was tough back then, but this is like way the hell over the top. It's just... You know, it's Tom Wolf, But anyway, watching it, you're just like, wow, we've come a long way since mm-hmm. I was 15. Yeah. But, you know, that there's a lot of people who were 40 who were in power positions mm-hmm. when that movie came out. Yeah. Right. And, and they're not necessarily not... woke yet. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And there, there are distinctions to be made between these two examples. But looking at something like. The Departed, which came out in 2006, which is a a remake of a Chinese film, Infernal Affairs. Um, And I don't remember there being any sort of like frustration around that. And I think probably the distinction that a lot of people see there is adapting a Chinese story or an Asian story and really changing the culture, like The Magnificent Seven or something like that, really updating, like anchoring The Departed in a Boston crime scene changes the culture significantly. But when you have something like... Death Note, which is an upcoming Netflix movie adapted from a very popular manga, uh, Japanese manga, and you don't change the culture very much and you have Willem Dafoe playing like this character called Ryuk, which is a Japanese like death god. It's just like it's you need to, I think, really put a significant cultural topspin on an adaptation of an Asian property to get away with things. Simply changing the last name is not going to do it for you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, so with Death Note, the main actors in that are Nat Wolf, Margaret Qualley, Shea Wiggum are all playing characters who have been sort of Japanese and other adaptations of this story so uh that's another that's another netflix property that is getting a lot of pushback right now so uh, like i i I am curious to see you know because there's a whole list of this there's like last airbender exodus pan these are all things that sort of weathered and and persia of Persia, Aloha, these are all things that sort of came up against that controversy and then did poorly at the box office. Whether or not you can draw a one-to-one comparison, because, of course, Dr. Strange did quite well at the box office, um, it seems to me to be a trend where for your business – it yeah. makes sense to wake up. Well, get that'll woke.
4: complete the transition. The transition starts when activists say, hey, wait a minute. We're upset about this and begin right. changing people's consciousness. Now there's enough people changed where it feels off. And the only way to successfully run your business is to acknowledge the new reality. That yeah. will that will. I mean, it seems obvious that that will end it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's always it's a familiar story of Hollywood being like four years behind wherever culture is. I mean, you see that saw that in like the '60s, where the mainstream movies were just so out of touch with what culture was, and it happens in smaller ways every year. But they
3: can be ahead too, or, or oh, sure, you know, certainly. Yeah, you know, I, this is not necessarily a whitewashing issue, but I just it just popped into my head while you guys were talking is. <laughs> Can you imagine a movie like Save the Last Dance being made now? Oh yeah, where she's like doing like (laughs) street white girl who just like invades the or not? Yeah, kind of invades these black spaces and then triumphs and like I don't know. It's just like. I don't know. But at the time when I was a teenager, that movie was like I mean, it wasn't hip exactly. We all knew it was a little lame, but like Yeah,
2: but no, but like teenagers know. saw it.
3: Yeah. Oh, for sure. I keep thinking about like the Eddie Murphy movies like um Beverly
4: Hills Cop or Trading Places. Like I can't decide to what extent were they radical in an amazing way, to what extent are they super problematic and dated. They're kind I of like think a about the, mixed. yeah. I
2: think of the uh the old men who orchestrate everything in trading places and how they're just basically the Koch brothers. Like it was very out of its time
1: in that way. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> I I watch Trading Places almost every year because it's like a critical tradition in my family and like you know eddie murphy is there doing his great eddie murphy stuff but like every other black character in that movie is a terrible terrible like stereotype
2: do blackface in that movie yeah he does (laughs) our producer alana is nodding very vigorously (laughs) it's been been a
4: long time since i've seen it as
2: mike was saying since the 80s we've made a lot of progress
4: progress. (laughs) a lot of progress
2: So um, we will see. So
0: you know, we're recording this the week before Ghost in the Shell comes out. Ghost in the Shell, I think, has been held back from. I think critic screenings are like tomorrow or something like that. Like it's been held back.
3: Yeah, they're they're really delaying it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, they kind of seem to rather that movie not exist, even though they spent how many millions on it. I think one of the stories that
0: really hurt Ghost in the Shell was this news that broke on Screen Crush that Lola FX, this FX studio, did CGI tests to see if they could change white features to look more Asian for that film. And though Paramount denies that they were ever going to do that to Scarlett Johansson, this reported story says that that was something they were considering doing, was basically like CG taping her eyes to be more slanted. And that's like, guys, that's, no, come on. Oh um, uh, No. So, uh, yeah, Ghost Michelle, we Shell, we're, we'll see what happens at the box office. Scarlett Johansson, of course, like has kind of a good record of open, you know, she opened Lucy sort of to the surprise of everyone. So this might do well. But, uh, you know, if it doesn't do well, it might be sort of the nail in the coffin, hopefully, of this trend.
4: But it would be interesting, you know, the excuse, I assume, would be, there's not a movie star big enough to anchor, you know, this hundred and eighty million or whatever it is movie um in your chosen ethnic group. And then and so to actually solve it would involve actually turning spending people the, the time movie stars. in developing talent over a long period of time and not just resting on the idea like there's all these crazy stereotypes like oh I'm in uh, You know, in Russia, they won't go. I don't know. There's there's all this stuff about like overseas, black actors don't sell. And somebody just recently did a
3: takedown of the L.A. Times. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And also like the the power of movie stars. I mean, we talk about this, like I'm looking at the box office split is the number five movie of the year so far. It's made one hundred and thirty seven million dollars. James McAvoy didn't sell that movie get out is number four movie doesn't have major stars in it i think there's there's alice
3: williams is huge in china
2: (laughs) (laughs) they love girls right Mm -hmm.
3: Catherine keener's big in in brazil you know There, there are reasons for that
2: so yeah as much as they want to hang on to the star system and the idea that the right star can sell your movie i think that's the more that falls apart hopefully the more room there is to like have different people leading these movies
0: is Pacific Rim considered a box office cassette? you know so it made $400 million worldwide on a um, $190 million budget I think it was considered not as successful as it might have been but your female lead in that movie is Rinko Kikuchi Oscar nominated Rinko Kikuchi and so I think a lot of people I mean you hate to just come up with one name but I think a lot of people were like well if Pacific Rim opened obviously it's not a sort of person based film in any stretch of the imagination but like I feel like you could have put a Japanese actress in this role and got a lot more people excited about it especially people who like the original manga like the original anime adaptation of it to be like completely fair as we're talking about this that character is like technically like a synthetic android. So I oh think boy. one of the things they're saying is that she's not really human, so it, she's raceless, so it doesn't yeah. matter. And Scar- you know, Scarlett Johansson herself has said similar. She's like, I wouldn't oh, she says, I think this character is living a very unique experience in that she has a human brain and an entirely machinate body. She's essentially identity-less. I would never attempt to play a person of different race. Obviously, hopefully, any question that comes up in my casting will be answered by audiences when they see the film. But the question, I guess, we have is will enough people go see the film to give it that chance? Or should they?
2: Well, I guess we'll report back next week on the Ghost in the Shell box office results. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, actually, more speaking about the modern Oscars, we're going to have Rebecca Keegan on later to talk about the meeting that the Academy is having, kind of as we speak, by the time you hear this, it will have already happened, to kind of just postmortem this year's Oscars, which, as you might remember, were weirder than usual. But first, we thought it was time for a flashback because we haven't talked about Feud, or at least in detail in a couple weeks. And uh, the episodes that are airing this past Sunday and then this coming Sunday both concern the Oscars, which are our favorite topic, obviously. So it's a surprisingly detailed look inside the 1963 Oscars, where you not only have Betty Davis who's up for the best actress prize but you got to really get deep into the campaign process and this episode airs on Sunday so we don't want to spoil it too much but also it's real life so i don't know how much we can spoil
1: <laughs> yeah so the
3: nominations episode was has happened yeah, yeah. so that the um, episode
2: ends with Joan Crawford screaming in her house because right. she didn't get nominated right
3: which is uh, among one of the kind of more outsized moments of that show I would say
2: well it's like a horror movie because you hear the phones being off the hook and she like right, wanders because through the, the house maid,
3: her, her trusty maid slash like l- sort of life servant has has <laughs> taken all the phones off the hook so she doesn't find out she's just genius but I think that the, the nominations episode is really fun because I think I meant said this briefly last week but like it was fun watching me like oh look all these people talking about Oscar nominations and really taking it seriously it was kind of like oh we're, we're not, no, <laughs> not we're not insane yeah, we're not totally yeah, insane like it, or like you know I, I don't know how accurate this is but like these people do care like you know <laughs> they talk about it like they you know, oh yeah it was just like a fun and was you know i watched those episodes you know a while back while the award season was still happening you know so i could write about it so i was really in the thick of award season and watching that then it was kind of surreal mm-hmm. but but also kind of great
4: though you do wonder if some of the strategizing is you know contemporary screenwriters looking at how insane it all is it's now hard to re- know reflecting yeah reflecting back
2: yeah. And I mean, th- you imagine that Hollywood back then was even more of a provincial town than it is now. Like it's a, uh, it was yeah. smaller. There are more people in LA because there's a moment where Hedda Hopper's talking to Joan Crawford and kind of scheming with her. And it's like, Betty Davis isn't one of us. Like she's not of yeah. Hollywood. And Joan Crawford spent decades in Hollywood, like being married to the president of the board of Pepsi and like being involved in everything. And you can see how it's like, well, you're the most popular lady in town, so you should win the Oscar. But it didn't work that way. Right.
4: Well, and a hundred percent, the retail politicking mm-hmm. and the floating of negative narratives are real like that definitely happens Mm -hmm. you know i don't know that the actresses themselves would ever do that these days there are plenty of paid people to do that for them yeah but um but they're you know i think that the talent is frequently involved in the strategizing
0: yeah in case people aren't watching or haven't seen the episode i think the what I found most reflective in the nomination episode of the race we were talking about this year is the idea of who's going to go into supporting. Because you've got Joan Crawford mm-hmm. and Betty Davis, who are co leads, like undeniably co leads in whatever happened to Baby Jane. The smart strategy would have been to put one of them in lead and one of them in supporting. But even if Joan Crawford had gone into supporting, she wasn't taken very seriously as an actress, just generally in her life, even though she won an Oscar. Or. Mm-hmm. And neither actress will budge and move into the supporting category. And so they're both, they're both running in lead. And then only Betty Davis gets the nomination.
2: And I honestly, like, you know, having seen the movie, it's been a while, but I kind of, I don't think they should have. Like, I think that whole, I mean, we talked about this with Viola Davis, like the idea of moving and supporting to make it easier. I don't like it.
3: Yeah. I mean, yeah. that that's a two lead movie, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that exactly. it's a bad thinking that sort of, I don't know what came first, but like, you know, I think Thelma will be, we talked about, this was the last movie that two yeah. lead actresses were nominated for Oscars. That is a reflection of sort of campaigning, but it's also a reflection of like what kind of movies are being made, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that to acquiesce to the idea that only one woman could be the lead of a movie, where instead of two, it's like, I mean, the same is true of actors, but yeah. But yeah. Um, I think the other thing that is funny to, in watching the episodes of Feud and then kind of reading about the real life Oscar race that year is that like, so Joan Crawford had one for Mildred Pierce and Betty Davis had two for mm-hmm. Jezebel. I forgot the other one, but she really wanted to become the first person to ever win three Oscars. Yeah, and you know Joan was not going to catch up to that. But I just think it's it's funny that like even fifty years ago, the Oscars were still at that point twenty something years old, thirty mm-hmm. something years old. That people cared about these kind of records and statistics and horse racing. It's just funny how quickly a community can. Rally around <laughs> awards, you know, and yeah. Like there's that.
4: nobody questioning at this time. Like, is this even worth it? Like, right? Does no I don't care. I it's mean, like it's at, at least not in like, the
3: in the version on the show, no right.
4: One's having existential doubts about the Oscars.
3: Yeah, it was only about twice as old as like the Cable Ace Awards were before right. before they went away. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and but people are like really care about it. Like, it really means something.
4: Well, actually, I think the people who do have more existential doubts maybe are the younger actresses that Joan is ultimately. Are we talking? Are we spoiling the next episode here?
0: I mean. She, we can talk about who's nominated at least, you know? Yeah, I mean it's it's real life. <laughs> and what Joe Crawford did.
4: <laughs> right. So so what Joan did was cut a deal with what, Geraldine Page and Bancroft, right? That uh, mm-hmm. if yeah. if they won, she would accept on their behalf. Yeah. Because why should you bother going to LA? You're you know, you're in New York, that that's where real acting is
3: done. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's well and- Bancroft was doing a play, yeah. right? Uh-huh. And then she kinda Convinced Geraldine Page that like, oh, it's so much hassle with the dress and everything. And you're, right. so, you're you know, so New York. And she's like, yeah. so I'll just do it. it it's just, I'll, I'll, you know. But that's
4: unthinkable now. but like, So that, that's a narrative that you could not do now. Like, there's nobody on earth
3: who would have just been like, great,
4: you just accept for me. I won't go right. to the Oscars. Yeah. Right. Like, so there, it was yeah, a little rinky dink in yeah. comparison to today.
3: It was more of a local event. Yeah, because like the show does right. a lot of stressing between L.A. and New York and like the Betty Davis was this East Coast person who was an interloper. The Oscars were sort of like, oh, this little party that had not little, but like this party that happens in L.A. Yeah, so it was kind of it was conceivable that, you know, some sort of like not unknown, but smaller actress who in an apartment in New York would be like, oh, I guess I don't have to go to that, right? Yeah. Well, you know?
4: well and I guess Darlene Page had been nominated the year before, so maybe right. she was kind of over it. But also, this is probably the beginning of, it's 1963, it's the beginning of Hollywood lunging for that New York-style credibility, and it was probably easier as a New York actor to be like, oh, yeah, the bunch of you know jackasses out there. Probably it was also more of a pain to fly cross-country, you know, although
0: oh, right. nicer. Yeah. <laughs> nicer. Yeah, nicer, yeah. but it took longer. <laughs> You know, not to spoil it too much, but, uh, you know, Ryan Murphy called his stam- uh, stalwart Sarah Paulson to play Geraldine Page. And uh, that scene where Joan is just t- like, it's not just – it's. That scene, by my interpretation, is not so much like, oh, you're a New York, a New York actress, don't bother. It was sort of like getting in her head about like how her dress wouldn't look good, you know, like all this critique and mm-hmm. like basically scaring her out of going to the Oscars. Right. Which, uh, you know, I don't know how accurate that is, but Sarah Paulson plays it really well. Oh my I God, thought, that scene! So. Is,
2: she's like we talk about Sarah Paulson on the show all the time because of People vs. O.J. But she's so good in that scene, and like, mm-hmm. she does so much in just one moment. And she, you know, she, I, as far as I know, she's not the rest yeah. of the series.
3: And there is a vindication in knowing that many, many, many years later, Geraldine Page did finally win her Oscar that for is. the trip to Bountiful so in like '85.
2: Oh, God. Yeah, that's yeah. right.
3: Um, a movie that my dad made me watch when I was a kid. And oh boy, it's about an old lady on a bus. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: pretty boring. Taking a trip to Bountiful, um, eh?
3: Yeah. But I think that even if you haven't been watching Feud but you care about the Oscars, this coming episode that's set at the Oscars is yes. worth watching because mm-hmm. it's a really fun imagine, like or uh, not really recreation, but like imagining of what, um, what that ceremony was like and what the backstage scene was like. Uh, uh, it, it, there's a lot of fun details that are extrapolated from real history. And then a lot that are sort of, you know, made up probably, but yeah. add to the fun.
0: I saw this episode a little while ago. It's my memory that they never show anyone playing Catherine Hepburn that you just get like a... No, I don't think she showed up. ...stop from outside her house and she's like... Yeah. Called recluse because she didn't bother to go to the Oscars yeah. at that point. Yeah, she never
3: she never did. I don't think.
0: Yeah, yeah she never accepted any of her. Oscars? I don't think so. No. God. Yeah, I don't think there's a the photo of her holding the statue, which is insane, right? Yeah, that is. Really <laughs> so she was four.
2: They do like a newsreel in the very beginning, and they kind of dispatch right. with Katherine Hepburn and Lee Remick and make it about Geraldine Page and Anne Bancroft and have her visiting them. The Anne Bancroft scene is great too, where she goes and intimidates her in her dressing room, and both Anne Bancroft and Geraldine Page have this like sense of recognition that like Joan Crawford has been like victimized by Hollywood, and this is what she's turned into. This woman. Who wants to basically go steal someone else's Oscar? Right. And then you look at the, I mean, again, spoilers for real life, like you look at the pictures of her with all the other three winners, you know, the classic picture they always take, and it's like her and Patty Duke and two other men, and she looks kind of nuts. Like she's got this, yeah. like the the, the, silver the real powder. picture. Yeah, the real picture. Yeah. I'm gonna pull it up so we can see this. In yeah, the... I was looking
0: at it earlier. It's insane that the class photo from that year has Joan Crawford in it. <laughs> yeah, like go up there and accept the award is weird enough, but to be in the class photo is bonkers.
3: It would be like Sashin Littlefeather being. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> it's it's Gregory Peck for uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, and it's really. Oh, and weird. she
3: yeah, and she did herself up in all the silver. I mean, it's, that's a black and white photo, but yeah, it's yeah. Spe- look it up, guys. It's it's um. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, so
4: that that speaks to something, not to get too deep into this, but um, as the Rush Limbaugh, or at least Bill Maher of this podcast. Don um, Imus. Let's Don, say. The Don <laughs> Imus of this podcast. You know, there's been some talk and people writing about the idea that Joan Crawford has had a bad rap, that, you know, maybe sexism has played. And I'm sure sexism plays into everything, and including this. But what I like about what Ryan Murphy is trying to do with the show is not shy away from the fact that, like, the behavior was pretty bananas, Mm -hmm. and that these two would have been probably very difficult women to deal with in your life, but to keep drilling down to say, so why were they that way, Mm -hmm. and get you to empathize without denying the fact that like, they were hard to deal with yeah you know it's not it's not about whitewashing their behavior and saying oh no actually she was a saint-like figure who Mm -hmm. was totally whose reputation was manipulated i'm sure there was not the most generous gloss on everything but that's the point of the show and same thing he did with Marsha clark Mm -hmm. to say like what's behind this image that you see and without shying away from the dark side of it how do we get to a place where there's understanding yeah, and humanity recognition of the humanity.
2: Yeah, because you see, like they've been kind of pitted against each other for their entire careers. Like, there's the right. great the great flashback where Joan comes to um, MGM or uh, no, yeah Warner Brothers. Brothers, and she has a scene with uh, Stanley Tucci where she basically like you know invites him to sleep with her because that was how she knew she could get ahead. Right. And like he's no saint either, but you're kind of pulled for both of them because they're both entertaining. Like it's letting you right. root for the pains in the ass who run Hollywood.
4: Well, and to see that that was the tactic that was just like the move that she had mm-hmm. in her arsenal. Yeah, and and. And, you know, like, what was she going to do? Not use it? Yeah. That's... So, um, I, so I really do admire that about the show. I'm sure, you know, look, it's, it's also fun to watch crazy catfight behavior. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Ryan Murphy has done a, to me, a good job of really kind of making sure that there's that layer of empathy going on the whole time. It's yeah. not just pure stereotype of people behaving horribly.
0: I think my initial criticism of the show was actually that I didn't, I was having trouble locating the humanity inside of the Betty Davis and Joan Crawford characters and seeing beyond, especially Susan Sarandon, like, um, a recreation of an icon, do you know what I mean? Because these two women were so, you know, I've seen like drag performers do these women for years, like they, they are iconic in their look and in their delivery and all that sort of stuff. So to find the humanity there, and I t- it think it took a few episodes for me to get there. And, and Susan Sarandon herself has given interviews where she said she struggled to sort of like locate the human inside of the icon that was Betty Davis. You know, this is a, is it an eight episode series season? Yeah. I think we're really getting to the meat of it now like sort of about halfway through the season so that's that's
3: great yeah you know and I think the thing I said weeks ago about the show that I like is that it's forced me to kind of go or not forced me but encourage me to go back and read about this stuff and, and watch interviews with the real life people there are a lot more there's a lot more tape of Betty Davis than there was Joan Crawford mm-hmm. Betty Davis did a lot of talk shows later in her life but you see Betty Davis on you know Dick Cavett or whatever it is she was a completely over the top character I mean she yeah. you know like and, and if anything Susan Sarandon plays her kind of down. Mm-hmm. Um and and Joan Crawford, you know, famously has admitted herself to throwing her co-stars clothing into the street while shooting Johnny Guitar. Remember <laughs> Mercedes McCambridge, who I had this quote up and I'm going to read it because it's so fun. Um <laughs> so Mercedes McCambridge <laughs> was who uh, was in Johnny Guitar with Joan Crawford. Was she much younger? Uh yeah, she, well, I, yeah. Uh, but she said um about Joan Crawford she was a quote a, a mean tipsy powerful rotten egg lady <laughs> <laughs> so people were saying these things I mean this wasn't like it's not gay men like you know 50 years later kind of making up a mythology yeah, well, yeah, yeah. about I mean yeah. speaking of gay men 50 years later but
4: still do you, have we discussed the my favorite story from the Betty Davis uh, piece that B- Bill Fry wrote William Fry was a producer who was friends with all these gals and, and back in the day I used to go with my boss to palm springs and we'd sit and listen to all of his stories and transcribe them and and he would tell so we did the whole one on betty davis when are
2: you gonna write a screenplay about that uh,
4: yeah exactly yeah. ran in 2010 it's called the devil and miss davis you can read it but after the oscar ceremony betty's with bill and the first thing betty did was take a glass and fill it with scotch right to the top no water no ice this is for labelle crawford she said she doesn't drink scotch i said she drinks vodka I don't care what she drinks. This is going in her fucking face. (laughs) So, like, I
2: mean, I think this is real, you know? Like, it's
4: they were larger than life. And yeah. I'm sure they were having fun with it at some No, clearly they played place.
2: into it. Yeah. Like, that was, yeah. like, part of, you know, that was what sold tickets to whatever happened to Baby Jane. You see that in this previous episode. Like, people were right. so excited to go see what they thought was real life of these two feuding in a house.
4: Now, of course, the the, the show also goes into how they were egged on mm-hmm. by Jack Warner yeah. and by the director, oh, for sure. you yeah. know, to, yeah.
3: to, well, for well, exactly that you. reason.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: There's a great, uh, one of the uh, video clips on YouTube of Betty Davis. I, I forget what interview it's from, but there's kind of, like, an audience Q&A and someone asked her about Joan Crawford and she gives this kind of diplomatic answer with sort of a wry smile on her face about how what she's a good actress and oh, I wish that I was, you know, oh, or no, she always showed up and knew her lines or whatever and uh, I wish I was half as beautiful as her and she says you know, but if you ask me on the street or something, you know, she said, but you basically intimates if you ask me in private, I would have something very different to say about right. it. And she's smiling and she's kind of laughing. And it's like, this was fun in a way. I yeah. mean, it was serious. Yes. But I think you're right, Mike, that like there was a kind of like wry tone to it. And like, it, you know, that it maybe shouldn't be treated as deadly serious as like some, you know, people want it to be. Well,
4: and right. They were entertainers. <laughs> and at yeah. some level, they knew that that this is what they had to offer, you know, that yeah. um at their advanced ages, which was like five years older than me right Yeah, now. no,
2: they're in there. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that it's both Jessica Lange and Susan Sarandon are, are, Susan Sarandon are older than they were at the time. They are Bro, both yeah. uh, close to 70 old. and then these women are in their 50s. Yeah. And I actually looked it up because in the upcoming episode, Catherine Seda jones comes and plays Olivia de Havilland at the 1963 Oscar. She went with Betty Davis and she is exactly the age that Olivia de Havilland was at the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's
2: a good bit younger than Susan Sarandon and Olivia de Havilland was a little bit younger than them. So that's interesting. She's yeah. great. I love her in that episode. It's yeah, been so long pretty... since we've seen her do much of anything.
3: Yeah, um, I wrote about it uh, when I went to a luncheon for Feud and sat at Susan Sarandon's table, but uh, which was a little scary. But after the lunch, I was taking the elevator out, and Catherine Zeta Jones was in the elevator, and I said to her, "I was like, so because she had said on stage that she had wanted to work with Ryan Murphy, and mm-hmm. I was like, so um, y- you uh, you're in the the troop now. You're in the Ryan Murphy." A, you know, no. repertory company now. And she leaned back and put her head against the wall of the elevator and said, I'm in the troop. It's everything I wanted. Oh, and then the elevator doors open <laughs> and she walked out in her heels to her like waiting black car and I was like, Oh my God, she's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> she like, is like a
0: Duchess, though, when we went to TCA and they had the feud panel and you've got this like murderer's row of amazing actresses and they're all out there looking just, you know, amazing and impressive. But then like Kevin Zeta-Jones is erect bearing and she's just sort of like sitting differently and just commanding your attention. I'm like, what? Why did she go? I mean, this is a story we should talk about. And actually, I was listening to our friends of the pod, uh, David Sims and Griffin Newman talk about on the Blank Check podcast when they did the terminal episode is like Catherine Zeta-Jones' insane career, how quickly she got her Oscar, and then how quickly she disappeared.
2: Well, you want to talk about like Hollywood being a provincial town. Like She's married to Michael Douglas. She, she's in every possible club. Like She kind of gets to make all the connections she possibly needs to by being Hollywood royalty. I like to think of it as being her choice, that she wasn't just going to take a bunch of shitty roles. But yeah, I mean, it was
4: like a Grace Kelly thing. It's just yeah. like, great, I've ascended beyond the need to do
3: this. Yeah. I mean, there, there were personal things in play in terms of her health and, and, <laughs> Absolutely. and, and children and stuff. Yeah. Um, and but health. yeah, but it was fun yeah, his health too. But it was fun just having this little sort of glimpse of her at this thing where it's just like, if she wanted to be, and I don't know if she does, maybe she does now, you know, she's like, reannouncing herself. But like, mm-hmm. she's, she's got that something kind of innately just magnetic about her.
2: Yeah, I mean, television is now the place where we let actresses like that really do whatever yeah. they want. Like, we'll talk about Big Little Lies later. So if yeah. someone can get her, her Big Little Lies or feud or... I mean, she's well. She can be in Charles versus Diana. I don't know who yeah. she can play. Yeah. But. Also,
3: she, you know, she she has been around. She did win a Tony yes. while, while while she was her film career was sort of on pause. Mm. Um... You know. <laughs> I'm really
4: I'm I'm having a hard time finding a recent example of a big feud in any of these categories. Well, you wanna
2: I wanna uh, start one? Well <laughs> we yeah. start start <laughs> I feel like I reference this all the time, but Karina Longworth's series on Joan Crawford, she talked about this a lot and she kind of compared the two of them to Kanye and Taylor Swift in that uh okay. Joan is Taylor Swift and is constantly rising to the bait that uh yeah. Betty Davis is putting out there and yeah. Betty kind of toys with her, like knowing that she can't resist it. Right. Uh they're not having as much fun with it. Like I wish that they would have they they would enjoy it. There right. was a
0: period where they both seemed to be in on it.
2: Yes. And then like Taylor Swift swung
0: back to like, well, I don't want to put blame on whoever, but like, because Kanye is sorry, crazy, but like, and so is Taylor <laughs> Swift in her own way, but like, you know, Taylor Swift just swung back to taking it too seriously, And I really wish you're right. Yeah. That they had, she had more fun with like the, the crazy ways in which he is like i don't know i'm gonna get in trouble for saying any of that so i mean i know on the male side i
4: i gather george clooney was was pissed off about the 2011 oscars but i don't know if it was more about uh, uh well i think he was annoyed that he lost to jean dujardin but yeah. I, I don't know that it was so much like a personal feud i think he yeah. just felt like silly that I he'd gone think- out worked that hard you know, done all the stupid events and then didn't get
2: it. I don't think he feels threatened enough by Jean Dujardin, right? It's like, <laughs> you know,
4: and probably was annoyed that the movie didn't win Best Picture. I feel like yeah. there's more kind of heated stuff over Best Picture mm-hmm.
0: director.
4: It's funny. I I mean,
0: they just so they so they're so good at rarely letting that show. But I did yeah, hear yeah. like an off the record, an actress who recently won. Well, how much do I want to identify? All her? right, Anyways, blind a, an item. A, an actress that you would know you know, a year ago or two years ago, basically said like, who do I have to like blow to get this award? And so <laughs> like that's the thing
2: they said and
0: whether in, jo- in jest or not. Yeah. I would imagine like many like actresses have said, said that. 14,000 times a day <laughs> in Hollywood. But like they don't let it show anymore, you know, right. Yeah, the- because they're playing the game. So we just need someone who like is tired of playing. But like the people who don't want to play the game don't care that they don't get the awards, right? So yeah,
2: I don't know. It's interesting. I'm like waiting for Meryl Streep to throw some bombs, but she's always got her sights on larger targets.
3: Speaking of blind items, well, actually, before the blind item, um, Clooney did later go on to cast du jardin in monuments Men. yeah right.
2: so i don't think it was yeah. about the two yeah, of them i think the he was just annoyed yeah. with the
3: whole process which yeah. i get but i heard about a recent best actress oscar race um where one of the nominees was so loathed by the other nominees that uh they all started kind of quietly campaigning against her um <laughs> and i hear this from credible sources.
0: many people are saying yeah i think the problem
3: is is that like crawford and davis well th- again the world was smaller yeah, um, and they were more pitted against each other in a way that hopefully women in Hollywood aren't yeah, so much because anymore. Yeah, I think women
2: don't want to play into that. You want like Emma Stone and Brie Larson to be supporting each other and doing it really publicly because yeah. if we saw them like, hence of them feuding with each other, it would make them not—they seem to be genuine friends, but it would make them look worse. It would make us feel worse. Like you want the it's, solidarity it's out of it politically. Right. Yeah,
0: solidarity is in. That was a whole narrative around Brie Larson and Casey Affleck, which is a different thing. But right, like we're we're so used to now seeing you know last year's winner anoint this year's winner and be like, oh, I'm here, you go, passing the torch, here you go, and then Brie Larson so actively not engaging in that this year, Um, uh, not not actively, uh, subtly. And everyone picked up on it.
3: Yeah, right. and I think with young actresses, kind of who tend to win Best Actress, like then they kind of cycle out of the system. This was a rare thing where you know this was this was Betty Davis' potential third Oscar. Joan yeah. Crawford already had one. They were later in their careers. I mean, now that those kind of standards are different, I do think that we do have a, an awards feud coming up that we haven't talked about, which is the Tonys,
2: mm. which
3: is potentially although i don't know if glenn close will be nominated because she's already won for sunset boulevard yeah. but patty lapone has a show on broadway and patty lapone notoriously she has no fear of diva behavior like glenn close <laughs> <No>. because of <laughs> the sunset boulevard catastrophe that happened in the 90s oh. uh, where patty lapone had done the show in london and then was expected to do it in new york and then glenn close opened the show in la and Andrew Lloyd Webber decided to have Glenn Close open it on Broadway, not Patty Lapone. And Patti Lapone sued and got some settlement money and has a swimming pool at her house that she calls like Andrew Lloyd Webber's swimming pool or something like that. <laughs> and she has like chapters about it in her book. I don't know if Glenn is eligible, but they potentially will be at a lot of like Tony functions. Somebody needs to cast them in something together. That's if, what if we, it need, would work. Yeah. Then we need. Yeah, we need. That's feud too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah,
2: we need a Jack Warner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we need Patty Lapone at the Oscars. Like she yeah. just like she doesn't give a shit at this point. She can say whatever she wants and still have a career. So
3: you also add the presence of Bette Nidler to this mm-hmm. Tony season. Oh, yeah, and there's, with just Hello there's just a lot. There's just a lot going on. Right. I'm, yeah. telling, I'm telling I'm you. intrigued. Yeah.
2: yeah. So after last year's Hamilton Love Fest, yeah. we're gonna enjoy some uh, feuds at the Tonys. There's
3: gonna be a big um, battle royale at Marie's crisis. <laughs> <laughs>
2: An in, in early June. It will burn yeah. to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's three more episodes of you left. We said there was an eight episode series. Yeah. And uh, so um, yeah, I'm they, fine.
4: I don't. What's after? I, I don't get what they're gonna do now. How do they have three great more question. episodes?
2: I mean, their careers both kind of ended. Oh, not there's long after no. That. There's the insane
0: Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Thing oh that yes, happened. they tried
2: to make a sequel together or a kind oh. of a spiritual and, sequel. And Betty
0: Davis gaslit Joan Crawford out of her role and recast it with Olivia Dablin it's insane i can't wait for that so
3: Catherine zeta jones will be back yes. which is exciting yeah, exactly. yeah so there there is more story
0: hush hush Sweet charlotte was originally called whatever happened to like cousin charlotte or something like that it was supposed to be like a sequel to whatever happened okay. to baby jane but betty davis is like i am not working with joe crawford and like d- basically drove her into rehab so or at least some sort of sanatorium so we'll tune in stay
2: tuned
0: <laughs> that is funny
2: so now we're joined again by our Hollywood correspondent, Rebecca Keegan. Rebecca, how is it out there in Los Angeles today?
1: Um, it's hot and windy. The Santa Anas are blowing, Ooh. which is, sounds romantic, but actually just means that everything's falling down. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of romance. Yeah. Isn't there
4: a movie where the Santa Anas play in?
1: I'm sure. Several? I'm sure. I, I mean, I think Joan Didion mentions them a oh, lot in her right. writing. That's what I'm saying. So probably other people have too. Uh,
3: the Joan Didion of the 90s, um, Dylan McKay from 90210... <laughs> Has a <laughs> a scene where he's talking with Kelly about the Santa Ana winds and how you can kill a man. And, That's and probably get away with it in certain, what I was thinking yeah. of.
1: That's my favorite transition ever in the
2: history of this podcast. I do think of him as Joe Diddy in the 90s. It uh, sounds
4: like something from Magnolia. It's like yeah. one, of the, one of the plagues in Magnolia.
2: <laughs> it's true. Well, I'm sure the Santa Ana one's knocking things down. It's not a metaphor at all for the state of the Academy as, uh, <laughs> no. as they prepare. So uh, as we're recording this, they're having a meeting today. That's kind. Of, it's an annual meeting, but this year it seems to come with kind of added import because of the uh, best picture fiasco that things ended with. So uh, what are you expecting out of this meeting, Rebecca?
1: Yeah, so the Board of Governors of the Academy meets every year in the weeks immediately after the show, and they have this sort of post-mortem, how-did-it-go kind of conversation, which is usually kind of bland, and they go over things like ratings and whether they were happy with the host. This year, obviously, is going to be a lot more interesting because of Envelope Gate. How the Academy handled it or should have handled it will be up for discussion. Many people, including some folks on the board, uh, like Perhaps Annette Bening, um, wife of Warren Beatty, think the Academy could have handled things a little bit differently in the days immediately after the Oscars.
4: How so, Rebecca? What did they do and what do people wish they did?
1: Right. Well, if you remember on, on the night of Coopers issued a statement, something like three hours after the Best Picture mix-up, and the Academy took much longer, I think something like 24 hours to say something And really did not seem to reach out in any kind of a way, in a personal way, to the people who were most directly affected. Namely, the filmmakers of Moonlight, who didn't get the sort of moment in the sun that Best Picture winners normally get, and to the filmmakers of La La Land, who had this sort of mortifying moment of having an Oscar for 90 seconds and then having it taken away, nor um, uh, Warren Beatty uh, and Faye Dunaway, who had to present the wrong envelope and then, at least in Beatty's case, seemed feared that this will be sort of what's written in his obituary. Yeah.
3: Who are people mad at? Does the blame lie anywhere beyond PricewaterhouseCoopers, that, the one accountant? Because it seems like at the end of things, it seemed to kind of all zero in on him.
1: It did seem to zero in on the accountant. And I, I think some people have commented on that, that while he ha- may have made the error in the moment, things were compounded by the slowness of the leadership of the Academy to respond. And so they're pointing fingers at Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who's the president of the Academy, Don Hudson, who's the CEO of the Academy. What makes it sort of interesting, I mean, people who run the Academy are constantly having fingers pointed at them for something. It's part of why that is such a difficult job and why you rarely see someone like, say, Steven Spielberg taking it. In the olden days, Gregory Peck, Betty Davis, these were the kind of people who ran the Motion Picture Academy. And it was kind of this figurehead job where they just wanted someone sort of glamorous to represent the institution. In recent years, particularly under uh, the the newest president, Charles Boone Isaacs, it's become more of a day-to-day job and a job where you really are a lightning rod for controversy.
4: Isn't it also true that a well-put-together, well-produced show would have had some fail-safes for one guy screwing up because he's tweeting pictures? Like, wasn't there some concern that the envelopes were too hard to read? And also that Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway refused to rehearse, which may have caused some problems, and maybe they, somebody should have stood up or at least made sure that they had properly countered for the fact that their most important moment of the night hadn't been rehearsed?
1: It does seem like there were a sort of a number of little small mistakes that added up to arguably the biggest mistake in Oscar history certainly the envelopes which had the super hard to read gold font this year for the first time oh, I were didn't know an issue. The font was
2: new that's yeah. a, you don't mess with a good thing
1: yeah the gold lettering apparently was different from how the envelopes had looked in the past and they made it harder to read and outside of the envelopes the category name is written so presumably if they had been this nice big bold best actress, print. Beatty would have seen it or the stage manager would have seen it. So even if the accountant screws up, it would have been really obvious to other people there. It's also peculiar that the accountant, after being told not to tweet, was apparently standing there in the wings using his phone and no one sort of noticed or asked him to stop. I will say that when there's that live show going on, Everyone back there has a job to do, and no one's job is babysitting the accountant. You know, people's (laughs) people's job is putting on a live three-and-a-half-hour television show. Now
4: somebody's will be.
1: Yeah. Right, right. Maybe now there will be a a staffer tasked with just standing next to the accountants making sure they're not – Messing up, but yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right, Mike. there, There were this sort of small series of errors. I know that Beatty and Dunaway did come to rehearsals, but I personally, although I sat in on many rehearsals, I didn't see theirs. And from what I've heard out of them, they didn't go particularly well. You know, these are sort of Hollywood icons who are not known for being easy to work with or taking direction well. Most people come to Oscar rehearsals and they're really grateful for the stage crew, kind of telling them where the microphone is going to pop up and which side of the stage they're going to enter from. These are two folks who don't sort of like to be told what to do. And I think we saw on Oscar night when you don't want to rely on the experienced crew, sometimes stuff can go wrong.
3: Now, the Academy, you know, having a meeting and kind of assessing themselves in the past year and, and what's to come, despite the debacle of envelope gate, how do you think they would grade themselves on you know, the 2016 slash 2017 Oscar year and and all that? Because I think there were improvements elsewhere.
1: Well, I think there's a lot of relief in the organization regarding the inclusion issue and the fact that this year's nominees had a lot more representation Mm -hmm. Um, after two years of Oscar So White and major controversial rule changes uh, at the Academy. I think there was just sort of a big exhale that change seems to have come. Now, whether that continues and whether this year was kind of a fluke and then things go back to the way they were. I mean, that's sort of always something that will be on people's minds. There were a lot of ruffled feathers with those new rules. There were a lot of people who felt things were handled poorly, including, by the way, Steven Spielberg. I mean, not just kind of the fist shakers who you read writing open letters in The Hollywood Reporter. You know, well-known, working, established people in the industry were not crazy about how the new diversity rules were laid out. The speed with which they were rolled out and and the implications some felt that they were sort of targeting older members. So I think that this new board, which was elected after those rules were passed, are going to be sort of grappling with how to enforce them. Um, and they're going to be sort of taking stock with how to execute these very ambitious new membership goals uh, that were set under the old board. They've also got this $400 million museum they've got to open, and they are you know, furiously raising money for that. And they've got to deal with electing a new president in renewing potentially the contract of their CEO. So it's sort of an opportunity for major change. I mean, it's it's inevitable that there's going to be major change. And it comes at a time when the organization is really at a crossroads and really needs a strong leader.
4: Rebecca, is there any chance that the Academy brings in their like Donald Trump type reaction figure, reactionary figure to roll back some of this stuff?
1: I'm trying to think of who that person would be. And I would James love Wood. to interview Melderson. him. Yeah, well, it's, you know, um, each of the the governors are the people who run things. So, so there's this 54-member board. They meet once a month behind closed doors at the academy. And they're, they're the ones who run the show. And they're, from the, that group, will be picked the next president. I don't know anyone on that group who I would consider in that category. Um, there are some people whose names are being floated who are sort of actually completely the opposite of that, like Tom Hanks is one that people are talking about as a potential, ideal uh, next president.
4: We need him to run the actual country, so... Yeah, I thought I he was running for president President, yeah,
1: It's true, it's true, and, and it's also hard to imagine that someone would want to step away from a, a thriving kind of busy acting career to take on all the work that this gig now involves. Unless someone wants to run it, you know, the way Gregory Peck and Betty Davis ran it, which is, you know, you just kind of dip in and dip out. I don't know if that's possible in 2017.
3: Who, who else is being floated around? Like, what names are, are you hearing?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, one one name that comes up a lot is um Nancy Utley, the Fox Searchlight executive, who's on the marketing branch. She's very well liked and she's great. she's great. and and, you know, like Sherbon Isaacs comes from a marketing background. but it's it's a little bit early days. We'll see in the next couple of months as the as the branches pick their sort of new governors. They'll be about a third of the board rolls over every year. So they will be voting in the spring for the new members. And from that crop of new members, we'll see, potential president who will replace Cheryl Boone Isaacs in August. So expect this spring and summer to see a lot of campaigning for Academy members votes, which is, it's interesting because I don't even, I don't know how much that used to take place. Now that is really If people want this gig, they really do have to work for it. Whereas before, I think people were sort of asked to take it. And it it was a much more casual thing.
3: Why do you think someone would want this gig? I mean, is it paid? (laughs) (laughs) It does. The the president of SAG is not paid. Is that correct?
1: You know, I I, I don't know if the president of SAG is paid. The president of the Academy is not paid. The CEO of the Academy is paid. So Sherylman Isaacs for the last four years has not been paid by the Academy. And, um, you know, she has some other ways that she makes money. Like she's a professor at Chapman university and stuff, but yeah, this doesn't come with some cushy, you know, paycheck and lots of professional perks. And it comes with a lot of potential for criticism, not only, Do you become the sort of symbol of whatever people are raging about on social media? But you have 7,000 Academy members who call you every time something annoys them, from the lack of parking at screenings to, you know, the major rule changes that were instituted a couple years ago. So I honestly don't – I cannot – If you're really in the heart of your career, I can't imagine it being an attractive thing to do. Although one person who I've noticed popping up a lot at Academy events, and it's got me wondering is Laura Dern, who represents the actor's branch. Among other things, she showed up at the um, Oscar nominees luncheon, and she took over what is one of the silliest and hardest jobs of Oscar season, which is reading the name of every single nominee and pronouncing it correctly. Wow. It's, yeah. it, it seems silly, but you stand at this podium and you read these names and she it's kind of a, a low glam gig. Ed Begley Jr. Had did it for years. And I found myself thinking, this is interesting that Laura Dern is doing this now. And I've seen her at a couple of other big Academy events. She spoke at the Governor's Awards in November. So she clearly seems to be elevating her profile within the organization, which got me wondering if she's thinking about a run.
2: Well, after she wins her Emmy for Big Little Lies, only then can she do it. because oh, she's uh, so good in she's Big so Little good. Lies. She <laughs>
1: is so good in Big Little Lies. Maybe as Renata, she could run the Academy. I think God, that then would she would terrifying. really get stuff done. Oh, it would. Oh, my God. Would.
4: would she be the first transcendental meditationist uh, president of the academy <laughs> I that guess has David
1: Lynch hasn't, hasn't done know? it yeah, I don't go. know that is an excellent question that would certainly be a barrier <laughs> broken maybe they could open every meeting that way and it would really <laughs> set yeah. things on a positive Oscar's course yeah. so, transcendental. <laughs> <laughs> so Rebecca from everything
2: that you're telling us and that we've talked about it seems like the academy for all the rule changes that have kind of shaken, shaken everybody up it doesn't seem like there's a lo- going to be like big massive overhauls coming they don't seem like the kind of group, like Mike was saying, to bring a Donald Trump in to blow things up and start all over again?
1: No, I think that, I mean, ultimately, it is still a predominantly liberal LA-based group of creatives. I mean, it's not... Again, a lot of the people who get the most attention do not necessarily reflect the wider group. They've also interestingly, with all these new members, they've gotten a lot more international. So even as I say that they're l a based, you know, they had I think members from fifty six countries invited in the new class. So if they change it's it's almost always gradual. and I think it will be not toward a trumpian figure, but potentially toward a more international figure or, towards someone who is maybe a little more famous than the most recent president i mean i, I do hear people calling for within the academy like it would be great to have an actor in that gig for the glamour sake of Even
4: it just someone you'd think twice about whining to you know what i mean like mm. are you really gonna mm. call tom hanks and be like, i do like to thank that you know <laughs> like save it um, but I do think that That's the votes point. that they made on on awards, first of all, totally screwed up my ballot because I yes. was p- predicting all kinds of cynical, like, you know, cranky old white people in the Oscars Academy. And they 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 made some great picks. I, I feel like that the actual awards handed out signaled good
3: things to come for whatever this new Academy votes on. Right. And now it's just incumbent on, you know, the people who make the movies to keep making, you know, to have another great year like we had last year. Sure.
4: But in other words, if it's the same people who gave Moonlight best picture, going to vote on their next um, Mm -hmm. president, you know, I think uh, hopefully uh, I, I would be optimistic about something good coming out of that. And Nancy Utley is a really, cool person. That would be a great pick.
1: Yay. The Nancy Utley
2: campaign starts here. Yeah, <laughs> Everyone, yeah. all you Academy Governors listening to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> go
3: right. n- I don't know if
1: she knows we just threw her hat in the ring, but we just threw her hat. In the <laughs> right. If you
3: are an Academy Governor listening to this, please do rate and review us on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> And get us on the screener list, maybe. Yeah. Just, yeah, uh, and nice, by the too. way, call me after the meeting. Yeah. Okay? Yes. Please. Yeah, Rebecca Academy is very government. available for your tips. I'm here for you.
2: Rebecca, thank you so much for uh, keeping an eye on this and for joining us to tell us all about it.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: That does it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, even if you're not an Academy Governor member, please rate and review us on iTunes. We appreciate it and we love hearing from you. Uh, also on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. That's a great place to talk to us and we've been keeping a close eye on it. And we're all at VanityFair.com and on Twitter ourselves. I'm at Katie Rich, Richard. Rylaz. And Mike.
4: Mike underscore Hogan.
2: And Joanna. At Jerothus. This. this episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner and thanks to Andy Bowers and Laura Mayer at Panoply. And this week's award for the new category we want to see at the Oscars goes to Mercedes McCambridge as voiced by Richard Lawson.
3: A mean, tipsy, powerful, rotten egg lady.